You can be seated for a couple of moments. We'll have you stand again in just a moment to read, but uh, I invite you to take your Bibles out and open them to Romans chapter 8 this morning. This morning we'll be wrapping up our look at this wonderful eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. I hope you agree that these last couple of months in working through this chapter have been um, wonderful, wonderful times we've worked through these things. This morning, as we come to the end of chapter 8, we will also be coming to the end of this section of Romans, a section that began, if you remember, way back in chapter 5, in which the Apostle Paul has been describing for us and teaching us some of the many, many benefits of God's gracious work of justifying us based on the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Back when we were looking at the beginning of this chapter, at the beginning of chapter 8, which lays out, as we've seen, one of the most amazing results of our justification when it says for those who are in Christ, who belong to Christ, that for them... For you, Christian, now and forever, that there is no condemnation uh, in store for you, not now, not ever, none in your future, none in your present. But back then I made the note that chapter 8 begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. And now we come this morning to that beautiful second promise. In fact, we could paraphrase it by saying that there is therefore now no separation from God for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many of you have ever suffered from something called separation anxiety? No? None? Well, okay. Separation anxiety is defined like this, as an abnormal reactivity to real or imagined separation from attachment figures, which significantly interferes with daily activities and developmental tasks. Children sometimes suffer from separation anxiety, uh, when they're, particularly when they're away from home for the first time, whether it's school or camp or something like that. Uh, we see evidence that dogs... I don't think cats do, but dogs uh, suffer from separation anxiety. We've all seen videos where dogs will destroy a house if they're left alone, or on the other hand, they will just sit in front of the door and wait until their person uh, comes back from wherever they've been. Uh, Parents, mothers particularly, can suffer a form of instant separation anxiety, uh, particularly when they're in a public place and are separated from their child for, oh, say, five seconds. I imagine all of you mothers know the the anxiety, um, verging on terror, that can grip your heart when you're somewhere public and you turn around and your child is not where you expect him or her to be. But Christians also suffer a kind of separation anxiety. Ours is a little different. We don't have anxiety when we're separated so much, but sometimes we can have a a fear of being separated, of being separated from God. We know that we don't live like we should, and the fact that the ongoing nature of the battle that we fight with our sinfulness, it can, regardless of our theological convictions and our theological understanding, our our knowledge of God's Word, it can cause us to fear, particularly after a very bad run, we might say, where we're struggling with sin and with discouragement, we we can get the feeling that God is maybe just going to be done with us. We know we deserve it. And of course, it doesn't help that that some Christian denominations teach that that is a very valid anxiety to have, that you need to watch out for that. Have you ever heard of someone um, who's worried that they or a loved one are going to, uh, that's a Christian, are going to die with unconfessed sin? Maybe you yourself have. Well, that's that's an example of this. That's a way that that... um, 
that it exposes itself as being a fear that God is going to just put us away. Now, this doctrine of separation anxiety, well, I've called it that, it's really just a question of assurance, isn't it? Chapter 8 of Romans has a lot to say about assurance, a lot of good things to say about assurance. Can we as Christians have assurance of our standing before God on an ongoing basis, or do we need to live in fear of somehow slipping through the crack of God's redemptive plan? That's the topic this morning. As I say, that's sort of been the topic of Romans 8 all the way through, but particularly this morning. Paul began the chapter with that question, with the talk of now no condemnation, and he's also going to end the chapter with it. So if you haven't already, turn to Romans chapter 8. We know that when we turn to Romans chapter 8, that something good is coming. Um, And this morning you can expect some very good news from God uh, if you are a believer this morning. A God-given remedy for any sort of separation anxiety that you may face. So let's stand together, and we're going to read verses 31 through 39 as we get ready to wrap up our look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. This, remember, is God speaking to us this morning. These are God's words to us. Let's give good attention to them this morning. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the the, the beauty of these words, for the encouragement of these words, even before we've had an opportunity to to dig into them and to see what they, they say. We can see what they say. And it is wonderful news. It is a wonderful promise of assurance for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we pray now, Lord, that as we look through these things, that, that you would just drill these down into our minds and, and fasten them to our heart, that we may go from this place um, knowing that we are secure in Christ, we who have faith in Christ. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want first to take just a moment to draw attention or you draw your attention to the way that Paul introduces the passage. And I um, will encourage your uh, endurance a little bit this morning. We'll go a little bit longer than what we, we normally go, but these all need to be uh, covered together. So we'll be, I think you'll be glad uh, that you stuck it out here this morning. Um, Verse 31 begins like this. What then shall we say to these things? Now, what is the, what's the conclusion? Obviously, those are conclusion words. Words that Paul is now saying, okay, I'm going to wrap this all up. And I'm, and I'm asking, what, what do, what's the takeaway from all of this? What is the conclusion that we are to draw, he says, from these things? What do I slip in the, the pocket of my mind and take home with me and remind myself after uh, considering these things? And then the rest of the chapter here that we're going to look at is his answer to that question. What exactly we shall say to these things? A response to these things. Well, the next question that we need to ask is what are these things? Well, this is a conclusion to what? 
Now, one answer could be that these things are referring to the immediately preceding verses, especially to verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, it could be those things that he's talking about. And partially, it is those things uh, that he's talking about. But I believe that these things, as Paul mentions it here, is broader than that. In fact, I think it goes beyond even all of the truths of chapter 8 which are certainly a part of this. I think it goes all the way back to the first eight chapters. I think that is the these things. All of what Paul has been teaching so far in the letter. In response to all of this, Paul is saying, what shall we say to this? How shall we respond to this? What have we learned? We've learned that all men are sinners. And God's wrath has been being revealed. And wrath is being stored up against all men. We saw that in chapters 1 through 3. But we learn that there's a righteousness that has been revealed. Revealed from God. Revealed to come through faith in Jesus Christ. A righteousness that is granted to us freely. That is accounted to us. That is imputed to us through faith by the grace of God. And these people to whom that is done, uh, Romans 3.24 says, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption of God that is in Christ Jesus. We have learned the result of this declaration of God that we are not guilty but righteous, uh, that this is called justification. And And as a result of that, Romans 5 said that since we have been justified by faith, we have, great, or we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that through His obedience, through Christ's obedience, His act of righteousness, that the believing sinner is placed in Christ and comes under the headship of Christ and shares in all that Christ has done and all that Christ has. As a result, we are freed from the curse of the law. We are freed from our bondage to sin. And then coming to chapter 8, we saw that there is no condemnation for us because of this. Though we all continue to struggle with sin, that's back in in Romans 7, but sin now is not our master, since we have been given the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Though we suffer still, we've learned that that our suffering is not to be compared with the, the glory that is to be revealed to us. And in fact, coming back full circle to verse 28, we know that for those who love God, that all things work together for good, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, those who are the called according to His purpose. Assurance that, that God's purpose will not be aborted, that his, assure, his, his salvation will not be thwarted in any way. And now Paul appropriately, naturally, comes to jubilant rejoicing. And the conclusion of this part of the book comes to us in verses 31 through 39. And we're going to look at three questions that Paul uses to sort of outline this or to to put this together. Three questions. The first is who can oppose us. The second is who can condemn us. And the third is who can separate us. Three important questions, especially for those times that we suffer separation anxiety or a fear of separation and in asking and in answering these questions the way he does Paul sweeps through the past comes through the present and considers the future of the work of Christ and the work of the father the first question is really who can oppose us it's in verses 31 and 32 look at it there he says what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can oppose us? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Wow, that's an important question. And let's not skip the first part of it. Paul says, if God is for us. Another qualification, just like we saw back in verse 28, where the promise of everything working together for the good was qualified, that it is for those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Here, the great promises and the, the great glory of this, these verses is for those for whom God is. If God is for us. And for you, Christian, that's not a question that is open to discussion. It's not a, a maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Maybe He is for us. Maybe He's not for us. It is assumed here in the text as true. And it is true. That's been the point of chapters 3 through chapters 8, or chapter 8 of Roman, Romans, that, that God is no longer our enemy, but now is our Father. There is no greater blessing, beloved, than to be the man, the woman, the child whom God is for, who is on the same side as the almighty sovereign ruler of the universe. Now, we need to be careful because there are a lot of people today who say that God is for us. There are cultists who say God is for us. We hear from God and He is the one who, who tells us to do the things we do. There are terrorists throughout the world, particularly Islamic terrorists, uh, who, who commit, of course, the most unspeakable acts and say that, that Allah is with them in what they do. Going back even to World War II, the Nazis wore belt buckles with the phrase Gott mit uns, which means God with us on their uniforms. Many people believe also that simply because we are the United States of America, that God is for us. Merely because the, the U.S. is an ally of Israel, that God is with us, that God is for us. So how do we know that God is really for us? How do we know He is disposed towards us, that He is smiling on us? That's part of the, these things that we've been talking about. We know that God is for us, Paul has said, if we have faith in Him, if we trust His Word. We know He is for us by the fact that His Spirit dwells in us. And we know that His Spirit dwells in us if He produces the fruit, His fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And that He is leading us in charging forward to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to put on that new man. And notice the important thing here is not that we are for God, that's important, but the thing that Paul mentions here is that God is for us. And if he is for us, Paul says, which he is, with every true Christian, Paul's question then holds true, or the supposed answer to it, the assumed answer for his question, who then can be against us? This is, in fact, all of these questions in these verses are rhetorical questions. The answer is obvious. The answer is assumed. And why is that? Well, it's because God's work in delivering up His only begotten Son, His well-beloved Son, that fact answers the question that Paul asks here, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because it says, verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the extensiveness of God's work, the surety, the assurance that we have comes in the, the, the fact that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. That's the basis of our assurance. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. That language harkens back to another incident in the Old Testament, this one, with Abraham and Isaac. Remember, God had given Abraham great promises. 
And one of them was that he was going to be the father of of many nations, so many people that you couldn't count them. But Abraham had a barren wife. And as he, as he went on, he, he gets also not just a barren wife, but they get to past the age of childbearing. And God then gives a promise to Abraham that one of his own sons is going to be the, the son of promise. A promise that Abraham believes. And as a result of that, a child is born. But then after the child is partially grown, another command comes from God that he take his son, his only son, and that he take him up on the mountain and he offer him as a sacrifice. And you know the story. As he rises early in the morning and takes Isaac and, and puts the wood on him and they go up the hill, as, as Abraham prepares to sacrifice his son, in verse 10 of Genesis 22, We read that then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You see, that is, and and you know this, that is a picture of the work of God. That is a picture of God offering up His Son. And just as Abraham, God did not spare His own Son, but offered Him up, not on an altar of wood, but on a cross of wood. And this was the picture of what God did. The difference is that there was no angel to stay God's hand. And God actually did sacrifice His Son, give Him up to be killed. Gave Him up which is what Paul talks about here. This was the work of God that he gave Christ up to be crucified. When it says here that he gave him up for us all, that means that he delivered him up. He handed him over. You know that Peter talks in, in Acts about how God gave his son up. This Jesus, Acts 2.23 says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here in the book of Romans, in chapter 4 and verse 25, we read that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. God is for us. How do we know? Because he has given up his son for us. He has done all of this for us all. Let's remember that this morning. That's the basis for all of this. And consider this, that Romans, or Isaiah 53, 5, says that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. This is the grace of God, the mercy of God, the pity of God, the love of God demonstrated. And it begins Paul's answer, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. He says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's argument now goes from the greater to the lesser. Since God has done this, since God has done the ultimate, the ultimate giving, Since he has delivered up his son, his only son, his beloved son, to be sacrificed, won't he also then also give us all things that we need? Won't he also then give us every spiritual, every blessing that we need? The way Paul puts that together shows us two things. It shows us, us, of course, the greatness of Christ's sacrifice. It was the greatest gift. See, the everything else that Paul talks about, the all things, are all lesser than the sacrifice of Christ. It also shows us, beloved, the assurance that we have because of that. Since we have the greater we can have absolute assurance of having the lesser. 
And the lesser is no mean thing. The lesser is all things. All things, everything necessary for life and godliness, Peter said. How unthinkable it is, Paul says. How unthinkable is it, beloved, for us to consider that God who gave His Son, gave up His Son for us, should then fail to keep us, should then fail to provide everything that we need in order to be fully and finally saved. Unthinkable. And this verse also tells us the nature of that gift. He gives all these things. He gives all things. Look at there at the end of verse 32. Graciously. Graciously. All things that God gives us, He gives us freely. He gives all of grace, all unearned, all undeserved. That's the blessings that we receive. The first question then presents God as the great benefactor of His people. And the answer, of course, is gloriously obvious. Because this is all true, who can be against us? No one. No one. But, you say, wait, hold on. There are, aren't there, many things against us. Many people against us. The devil is against us, isn't he? He hates us. He tempts us to sin against God. He would destroy us. He seeks to devour whom he can. The devil's against us. The world's against us, isn't it? The world hates Christ, and you are Christ's. So even as Jesus said, make no mistake about it, the world hates you. Our sinful natures are even against us. In Galatians 5, Paul said that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. So aren't all of those things against us? Well, of course they are. But what Paul is saying here is that they cannot effectively come against us. They cannot prevail against us. The point of all of this is that despite the intention of our enemies to come against us, to do us harm, despite their best efforts or their worst efforts, however you want to look at it, one thing is and always be, will be true, and that is that they will not be effective against you, Christian. Why? Because God is for you. Because he has given us both the greatest gift, Jesus Christ, and because in him he has given us all other things that are necessary for life and godliness. Since the God of creation, the architect and worker of redemption, against whose will nothing can stand, no one can stand, since He has decided to set His redeeming love upon you, since He has given His only begotten Son in order that you could have eternal life in Him, since He has justified you completely and fully through Christ so that every ounce of your debt toward God has been paid, since you have been completely and eternally forgiven of every sin you have ever or will ever commit, since that is true, who can be against you? The answer is no one. Jim this morning read from Psalm 27, and I asked him to read that because it is such a perfect echoing of this. Let me just reread the first six verses. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. Since God is for us, who can be against us? No one. So from this question, this first question of sort of a general orientation of anyone being against us, Paul now turns to a, a more, in a more legal direction, a formal direction. And his second question then is who can condemn us? Verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if the first question presents God as a a benefactor, this question presents him as the judge. This question is asked and answered in the courtroom of heaven, if you will and presents God as the final arbiter, the final decider of the guilt and innocence of every person. Paul's second question here is, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And again, what Paul is really asking is, who can effectively bring any charge against one of God's foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and sure to be glorified children? We have to ask it that way because, again, there are certainly those who would try to bring a charge against us. One in particular. One who is certainly a willing prosecuting attorney against you. One who accuses you at every opportunity. One who, in fact, is known in Revelation 12.10 as the accuser of the brethren. The devil. He is the one who will accuse you at every opportunity. And you, Christian, like me, give him countless opportunities, don't we? In the case of Job, righteous Job, just Job, Satan yet accused him before God. How much more will he accuse us? This accuser has much evidence on his side. Exhibits piled high that demonstrate your guilt and my guilt. We have the the, the pronouncement of Scripture that that, that he can call as as exhibits. The pronouncements of Scripture that all have sinned. That there is none righteous. That our righteousness is like filthy rags. Even we as Christians are unrighteous sinners in and of ourselves. And yet, the answer to the question, who shall bring any charge against you? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is so patently patently obvious that Paul doesn't even answer really. He only gives the reason for the oh-so-obvious answer that he brings forward that again, no one can. Because, he says, it is none other than God, the righteous, just judge. Because he has, note this, mark this, love this, rejoice in this, he has already rendered the verdict concerning you. And he has declared you innocent. He has declared you righteous in his sight when he justified you. And God's judgment, His pronouncement is always right. It is always just. Psalm 19.9 says the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And again, it is not that no charge can be brought, but that no charge can be brought and, as we might say, made to stick. There is no charge that can be brought against you, Christian, before the court of heaven that is not immediately stopped and rendered moot by the work of Jesus Christ. It is on the basis of Christ's work that God has pronounced you innocent, that He has pronounced you righteous, and thus no accusation can be brought 
When it is, it falls on, as it were, deaf ears. Let's say, satisfied ears. Because of the redemptive deeds of Christ, past and present and future. Paul's answer here includes another question. He says, who is to condemn? Verse 34. To condemn means to pass a judgment and to pronounce a sentence of guilty. And again, Paul gives a rhetorical assumed answer. Who condemns? Who can pass a condemning judgment on you? No one. Why now? Well, because of these things that he is talking about. Because of these things that God has done. Because it is God who justifies you. Justification, remember, is the opposite of condemnation. So who can condemn you? No one, because God has justified you. Though you were condemned, John 3.8 says that those who don't believe are condemned already. You are now in Christ. And what do we know if we don't know anything about, else about Romans chapter 8? What do we know? That for those who are in Christ, that there is therefore now no condemnation. Conviction of sin? Yes. We're convicted of sin. Chastisement for sin? Yes. But as we've said before, as we saw back in chapter 8, verse 1, you will never be condemned for your sin since you have been justified by God through Christ. That's your assurance. The separation anxiety evaporates when we think of that, when we consider that, when we believe this. And then Paul, Paul adds a, a fourfold statement of the work of Christ, a work that begins in the past, goes through the present, and reaches into the future, a work that takes those takes three glorious acts of Christ and binds them together. What three glorious acts of Christ am I thinking of there? His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. And I love the way Paul answers this question. Who is to condemn? Well, let me tell you, Paul says. Let me tell you who can condemn you, Christian. He kind of says that the answer is not even worthy of being asked, but he says, let me answer it this way. First of all, Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's the past work of Christ. That's why no one can condemn you. Because Christ provided satisfaction to the justice of God completely, fully. He turned aside the wrath of God. The one act of righteousness brought justification for many. Second, he says, more than that, who was raised? Jesus was raised. Not that being raised was more important. The point is that Jesus wasn't just killed by man, but he was raised by God. He was raised by the Father, which demonstrated that Jesus' death did what it was preordained to do. It satisfied the justice of God completely. Paul always connects the death of Christ to the resurrection of Christ. Both are necessary to remove any possibility of a charge being brought against us. Again, Romans 4.25 says that he was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. So Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. The third thing, he says, who is at the right hand of God. And that pulls us right into the present, right into the future. He is at the right hand of God. This points to Christ's exaltation to the right hand of the Father from where He reigns today with all sovereignty, with all authority, and with all power that was given to Him. From where we know that He will come to judge the living and the dead. He is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning as the supreme judge. And that's the fourth thing. As the supreme judge, he, he, he may terrify us, but Paul adds this, that the doctrine might comfort us. It's not just that he's at the right hand of, the, of God, but it says, who indeed is interceding for us. He is our intercessor, our mediator for us. 
You know, on the one hand, that statement places Christ at sort of the farthest distance from us, at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. But on the other hand, this work of Christ places him in the most intimate connection with us. He is interceding for us. That's a priestly work which has specific reference to us individually. As Christ, as it were, pleads our case at each moment before the Father. Hebrews 7.25 says that He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 9.24 says that Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. God the Father has pronounced you righteous in the Son. The Son, the Lord Jesus, came for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He was raised for you. And He continually intercedes for you. Just as we've seen, the Spirit does the same thing. He intercedes for you as well. And so, once again, how unthinkable is it that that after all that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, has done and are doing and will continue to do after the the once-for-all redemptive sacrifice and the ongoing work of intercession from the Son of God, how unthinkable is it that anyone would then be able to come in and cause God to change His verdict concerning you? Who could come in 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 the midst of all of that and cause God to say, well, yeah, he is pretty bad, she is pretty bad. I'll reverse my decision. He has justified us through the work of His Son and His work, past, present, future, will allow for no condemnation. And His Word is final. That's the great thing about God's pronouncement. You know, there's no court of appeals above heaven. And this all leads to the pinnacle of this passage. The the crescendo of this portion of the book of Romans. And it's our third question that asks, basically, who can separate us? We've seen God as the benefactor. We've seen him as the judge. And now we see him and consider him as the eternal lover of his people. Paul asks now in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? At the end of the passage, he says it, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. Then he gives a list here of several candidates for things which we face from time to time, which we may may fear can cause a separation between us and our Redeemer and can cause in us this separation anxiety. Look at his list there in verse 35. He says, tribulation. Can, Can that do it? Shall that separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, that's pressure or hardship from outward sources. Or distress, that's inward. Can those separate us from the love of Christ? How about persecution? Specifically, that is religious persecution. Persecution for being a Christian. Shall that? How about famine or nakedness, he says? What about material lack? Lack of creature comforts and even creature necessities. Food and clothing. Shall losing all of that, shall our being destitute do it? How about danger? That means anything short of death. And just to fill that all in, he says, or sword. That means death. Can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ, Christian? And by the way, that's not just a theoretical list for the Apostle Paul, if you think about it. He had personally experienced all of those. Read 2 Corinthians. Except the last, of course, and he would experience that one soon enough for the sake of the gospel. And they're also not theoretical for us. These things in in various degrees, various subsets of these are part and parcel of the Christian life, as God wills. Paul shows that by this quotation from Psalm 44, 22, which we find in verse 36. 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's just saying we all live under the threat of death. We all live in the the world of, of persecution, is what he's saying. But should these things cause us to fear? Should these things cause us to despair? Well, what did Paul just say up in verse 28? He said, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For our good, for the good, our ultimate good, remember. Well, if God knows and ordains and uses all of these for our good, they are certainly not going to chase the love of our Lord away from us, are they? So the answer again comes back, no. These things will not separate us from the love of Christ. He will not abandon you, Christian, in the midst of any of those things. In fact, Paul says in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In enduring any or all of these things, we will not simply escape by the skin of our teeth. We will not escape wounded and bleeding, but breathing. But we are more than conquerors. The word literally means super conquerors. We abundantly overcome, we completely and overwhelmingly overcome, Paul says, through him who loved us. We are victorious because Christ, who loves us, was victorious. He was victorious over these things. God, who loved us, continues to do so. He never ceases to care for us and to have his fatherly hand upon us. And the proof of that and the enjoyment of that Christian may come only when we open our eyes victorious in the presence of God. But it will come. And then Paul concludes. He concludes with a a note of great personal confidence in the nature of God and in the love of God for his people. He says, verse 38, he says, he says, I am sure. In the original, it's written in such a way to emphasize the the absolute and permanent assuredness that Paul's talking about there. The King King James says, I am persuaded. Other translations say, I am convinced. Those aren't quite strong enough. The ESV is very good here. I am sure, Paul says. I am sure, he says, that absolutely nothing in heaven or on earth will be able to separate us. Make it personal. We'll be able to separate you. We'll be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And he gives a list. Of, of opposites, of extremes, which will include everything in the middle. Neither life nor death, he says, nor angels nor rulers. And it's a way of speaking of not holy angels, not fallen angels, not demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, earthly powers, heavenly powers, nor height nor depth, not time, not space, nothing. Nothing can separate you from God's love, Christian. Nothing should give you anxiety if you are a child of God. Nothing should give you anxiety that God will withdraw His redeeming love from you. Paul says, I am sure. Here's a question this morning. Are you sure? Are you sure? If you are a Christian, you can be sure. You should be sure. God has given you all of the the assurance in the world so that you can be sure. If you are not a Christian, you can be sure. Just come to Christ in faith. Trust Him. Turn away from yourself and relying on yourself 
and turn to the only place that can, where salvation can be found in Jesus Christ at the foot of the cross. But for you, Christian, there is no reason for you to have anything other than assurance. Because of the fact that God is for us, because he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up and will certainly give us everything that we need, because God has justified us on the basis of Christ's death and his resurrection, because Jesus, who not only died but was also raised, and not only that, but is right now at this second in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father and interceding with God for you, presenting himself as the perfect sacrifice for you, because of all of these things, we can be assured that nothing will separate us, nothing could possibly separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so this chapter, which began with no condemnation, gloriously ends with the assurance that we will suffer no separation. No separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of the resources of of heaven have been put to use to obtain and to retain you for God. So do not be anxious, fearing separation, but be joyful, Christian, this morning knowing that you are secure in Christ. Sometimes these verses are referred to as the Christian's triumph song. And so as we go from here this morning, let them cause joy to go with you. Let your hearts be lifted up, beloved. Let your lives express your gratitude to God for the great gift that he has given. And to that, let God's people say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that there's nothing in us that would be able to to keep us. But we thank you, Lord, that in you is mercy. In you is found grace and pity for us. In Christ is found the ground of our justification. He is our righteousness. Let these words, Lord, and, and the words of these, this entire chapter especially, Father, be to us a great encouragement as we go forward. And let, a, let them be to us, a, a, well, an inspiration to live a life of gratitude knowing that there is nothing we can do to earn your favor, but that you give it freely and that you give it and show it through the sending of your Son and his dying for us and living for us. We pray, Father, that we would go from this place rejoicing in the fact that there is no condemnation, O Lord, and that there is no separation from you because of Christ and because of your grace. We ask all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.